Today's guest is Noam Schuster Eliassi. She's an Israeli comedian and activist, born to an Iranian Jewish mother and a Jerusalem-born father. I get often attacked by what I say and what I think and what I do, but there is really no other choice. The more I realize what happened to me and my identity, the more I realize how huge of a role my Mizrahi identity, my identity as a Middle Eastern Jew, played into growing up with Palestinians and realizing our shared narrative or how I even think about our future identity in this space without the occupation. My grandparents are Jewish. They prayed for Jerusalem their whole lives. To take weapons and settle and do something nationalistic, it's not in my Jewish DNA. Israeli Jews, we don't have to live such a life where we are occupiers. Palestinians deserve to come back. Palestinians are not unique in wanting to resist power that is seeking to exterminate them. You would uh, think that Jews can understand this. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you've been crying uncontrollably about the death of a South African cosplaying as a Jew, but you've never once shed a tear for Palestinians. Yeah, man, that's crazy because we've been talking about that for several months now, about this phenomenon of South African settlers going to Palestine to settle in Palestine because they're not happy that they no longer live in an apartheid state. And lo and behold, we just keep hearing news about settlements. And now, of course, this case of this soldier who who was killed. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not he was a legitimate target or not. The position of international law is that he is, and so was the position of Israeli law, actually. But um, people seem to forget that when, when they want to. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. And if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. We're also going strong on Patreon. So if you love the Palestine Pod and you want to support this project, join our Patreon where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes, an additional one to two podcasts per week, including our latest creation, the Patreon Pod. It's a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, little pop culture, and we get a little more personal with our listeners. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash palestinepod. Today's guest is Noam Schuster Eliassi. She's an Israeli comedian and activist. She performs in Hebrew, Arabic, and English. And she was born to an Iranian-born Jewish mother and a Jerusalem-born father whose parents were Holocaust survivors from Romania. I recently watched her Al Jazeera special, Reckoning with Laughter, and I highly recommend it if you haven't checked it out already. Noam, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Yay, thank you for having me. And I'm super happy you watched it. (laughs) I I did. I have have questions for you about it. (laughs) Yay, I'm happy. I really hope more people watch it. I I was just informed that there's going to be like a huge publication about it and stuff because 
I can't even comprehend the stuff that we've all been through in the past year and a half. So the fact that it's documented in a short film, I'm super happy about it. Yes, congratulations on that as well. So maybe just to start, why don't you talk us a little bit through your family origins, how they got to Palestine, what their background is. Um, I know your father was a refusenik. He went to prison for his refusal to serve in the occupation forces. So it seems like this is something that, you know, your parents at least passed down to you. We've had several Israelis on the show that grew up, for example, in super Zionist families, and then anti-Zionism was something that they sort of, you know, went on a path to discover and embrace themselves, like, for example, Miko Pellet. But then we also had, for example, Hadar Cohen on our show, who considers herself a Palestinian Jew because her parents and her, her ancestry actually has been in Palestine longer than Zionism. They trace their lineage back over 10 generations. And so they were of the Jews that were living side by side with the Palestinian Christians and Muslims in Palestine going back to the Ottoman era. For her, anti-Zionism was something that she had definitely passed down to her from her parents and that she also continued to embrace. Maybe you could, if you could just ta- start by talking about, you know, your own family's experience and then, you know, your relationship to anti-Zionism, that would be great. Yeah. So first of all, I'm happy to be here and uh, I'm super also, you know, proud and honored that you, you guys are thriving with your podcast and, you know, you're getting more listeners. And I think these topics, as much as they're sensitive and difficult uh, I I think it's so uh, it's so important that you're that you're out there saying the stuff that people just don't want to say. And obviously, as someone who lives here, for me, I get often attacked by what I say and what I think and what I do. But the feeling is that there is really no other choice than you know saying the hardest things at at, at this point. And these are difficult days uh, also on all fronts. My Jewish identity is very mixed and confused as of itself because uh, I'm half Ashkenazi and half Mizrahi. For those of you who don't know the terms, Ashkenazi is the Eastern European origin, Mizrahi is the Hebrew term for Eastern, for Mizrahi Jews who came from uh, Muslim, Arab, North African uh, countries. My mom was born in Iran. My mom was born in uh, Abadan. It's a uh, it's a city uh, on the border with Iraq. It's in the Gulf, and m- my Iranian identity is a huge part of what I do, of how I look. <laughs> in case you haven't noticed, uh, of the uh, of the kind of uh, tradition and culture and belonging also that I grew up on. My father's side of the family. My dad was born in Jerusalem, but his uh, parents are Holocaust survivors uh, uh, from Romania. And I have to say that I think my my roots come from my mom more. And because I was born and uh, I, I was raised with Palestinians in a mixed uh, village, in a mixed community called Wahat Salam Neve Shalom. In English, it's the Oasis of Peace. You like listeners can Google about it. It's the only community where Jews and Palestinians live together by choice in order to create some kind of an equal community. And I grew up there from the age of seven. And... You know, a lot of people ask me, how was it like to grow up there? And why did my parents move there? And the more I grow up and the more I uh, realize what happened to me and my identity, the more I realize how huge of a role my Mizrahi identity, 
my identity as a Middle Eastern Jew, as, a, as, a, as an Iranian Jew, played into growing up with Palestinians and realizing um, our, sh- our shared narrative or how I even think about our future identity in this space without the occupation. My parents were raised into families who were poor, immigrant families who came in the late 50s. In 1948, not only did they not have any militant intentions that have to do with Zionism, they were (laughs) very far away from the idea of militantly coming here and, uh, you know, replacing Palestinians or leaving their homelands. My family in Iran, uh, we go back uh, centuries, thousands of years, uh, Iranian Jews, um, and specifically the family, uh, you know, the families that I come from. We have a rich, beautiful, long, ancient history in Iran that I'm obsessed about. And I mourn the loss of our uh, tradition and heritage and the fact that we can't see, I can't see where my mom was born and my access to there is very, very limited. And, you know, this is another form of erasure of identity that we can get into, but just to set the stage. And so... From both of my parents, my Romanian side, my Iranian side, I'm not coming from any sort of idealistic, you know, we need to be here, we should be here, we fought to be here, we moved here. To be quite honest, uh, I think there was a lot of pain around coming here. There was a lot of uh, forced displacement around coming here. My grandfather, once he saw where they put all the Iranian immigrants in a poor uh, development town in the south, uh, next to Ashdod, uh, called Yavne, he was cursing the hell out of whoever, <laughs> you know, Ben Guri. Like, I have a few images of him in my childhood, like, cursing, you know. And, um, and so I am in, you know, I just don't have it in my family history, this kind of longing for Zion in a sense that is non-religious, in a sense that it's nationalistic, you know? In a religious way, yes. My grandparents are Jewish. They prayed for Jerusalem their whole lives to take weapons and settle and go intentionally and do something nationalistic about it. It's not in my Jewish DNA. It has never been in my Jewish DNA. And I've researched, I tried to see if there were any Zionist pioneers, whatever. No, I, I don't have it. I don't relate to it. I'm happy about it because it solves something about how I think of my Judaism and it solves something about how I think of what my grandparents have been through when they were brought here in the 50s. Uh, you know, on one side, you have the Mizrahi experience, which is the experience of erasure of culture, of they were looked down uh, down upon, uh, sprayed with DDT, looked at as... Um, um, as if their culture is inferior to the Ashkenazi European culture. And my mother was afraid and uh, embarrassed to uh, speak Farsi in public. And they had to Israeliize themselves, Ashkenormalize themselves in order to survive or be anything. My grandparents didn't speak really Hebrew. My, My grandmother spoke Farsi to me, to my mom. And she missed Iran until her very, very last days. And, and so my parents developed their political consciousness and their political awareness by themselves, without any ideological uh, background. 
they uh, met in a boarding school, an agricultural boarding school of children of immigrants just gathering around from all corners of confusion possible. And once years passed, they just developed more and more political awareness. And I really don't know how my parents from a very mainstream kind of, you know, Israeli immigrant kind of experience, how they developed this sense of mission. My parents, uh, at the, when I was seven years old, they moved intentionally to raise me and my brother with Palestinians. In the first intifada, my father is called for reserve duties and he refuses uh, a few orders, uh, uh, draft orders to Lebanon, to Nablus, to Ramallah, and he refuses them. And my, so my first memories are shaped by my uh, father being in the Israeli uh, military prison. And I remember my mother was pregnant at the time, uh, you know, having my brother. And I recently found a suitcase full of letters that my uh, father used to receive to prison. And it's so hilarious, so hilarious, the kind of letters that he was. There were hundreds of refuseniks. Today, there are a few, a handful. Back then, in time of Lebanon and in time of the First Intifada, there was a movement of re refuseniks. Uh, my mom, as the wife of a refusenik, was also getting some kind of a support chain. They were getting letters and everything. And it was just so funny to see how, like, the Ashkenazi leftists were writing to my dad um, all of these nice letters, like, uh, we're so proud of you for refusing and, you know, for standing up for your morals. And then all my Persian aunties were writing my dad letters. You left my sister alone, pregnant because of your ideology. What the hell is this? Come home. Like, you know, just all of these uh, contradicting uh, responses in the, in the suitcase of letters that he used to receive. And I'm just super, super lucky. And, uh, my parents are amazing. They're the reason that I e even able to do what I do because I grew up in a home that when I was growing up very, very early on, I learned Arabic. I, I, uh, next door neighbor is Palestinian. In Israeli Independence Day is no longer just Israeli Independence Day. It's the Nakba Day of, of our neighbors, of my best friend. I grew up in a way that was inherently very, very different from the normal, mediocre, um, mainstream Israeli that grew up just on the Holocaust narrative and the Zionist narrative. I was exposed to Palestinian pain from when I was a child. And this is just something that is, it's uh, unerasable. Un <laughs> like I cannot, I cannot erase it. It's part of my identity. It's part of my skin color. It's part of my, uh, it's part of, of, of how I think of this land. And, it, you know, it makes you an outsider. And uh, I've had moments in my life where I was really mad at my parents. I'm like, couldn't you just raise me somewhere normal where I don't have all of this responsibility on my shoulders? But I grew up uh, learning to just appreciate it because there's, not, there's nothing that could compare to having your, your eyes open like this. So would you say that you identify as an anti-Zionist? Yes. And you also chose to not serve in the army, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that decision-making process and sort of what happened to you? Yeah, so 
the army issue when you grow up in a mixed village like this it's a huge breaking point a turning point i think for you know for a lot of people because i think that i mean very early on i understood that not only am i not going to serve in the army i'm not going to walk around with uniform after 18 years of <laughs> being raised and educated by palestinians and having a shared life you know in the same uh, village and so i think the big turning point was when the intelligence through classes arabic classes in school understood the level of my arabic and when they were hardcore trying to recruit me and make me understand how much i'm missing for not being in this like intelligence elite unit i realized uh, how like there is no fucking way that i'm giving you my my arabic and there is no way that i'm going to be part of the system you know and, and on a more like uh, kumbaya note <laughs> less like practical my best friends uh, my best friends were palestinian they grew up with me they really knew the price that i'm paying for being an israeli jew that is not uh, going to serve in the army so we had that moment where the letter came from the army to our house and my best friend was with me at the time and she looked at me and she's like whoa like what are you going to do and when i realized that my best friend understands what i'm about to go through for refusing to be you know blindly going after my own people then i was like i have to do it like if you want to see an alternative you have to practice it like you know if if i'm privileged enough that i grew up in a house that showed me that there is an alternative i have to show the world what this alternative looks like and it looks like me being uh, a woman that is not going to the army and is not going to take part in the systematic oppression of my neighbors and obviously to not give you know the power of using my arabic they wanted you for uh, the intelligence services yeah you know from high school they make sure that you know what you're missing out on and where you can be recruited the army penetrates into our educational system mm-hmm. from a um uh an early stage in one way or another uh, i uh, was dismissed as a conscientious objector i had a i had a trial a committee which is something very surreal and absurd to go through when you're just 17 years old i remember that this committee was supposed to be a civil committee with people without uniform and this committee was also designed for uh, jewish observant uh, religious girls who were also refusing and i remember that everyone in the committee were yelling at me besides the rabbi the rabbi was the nicest to me and he looked at me and then he looked at the rest of the committee and he told them this young woman here just like any religious girl she grew up in a set of house in a set of uh, community that uh, she 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 just can't she can't uh, uh, identify herself by going to to a military organization so just as you understand a religious girl you have to understand that this girl is different as well he was really i mean besides the fact that there's a religious person he just doesn't want me to go to the army because i'm a woman like you know but besides that i really have a positive memory about the rabbi really being on my side which is a whole other discussion about ultra orthodox people being uh, non conforming to the system. <laughs> so your family's story is sort of mirrored in the story of Givat Amal, right? The site 
that was Jamosin, a Palestinian village with a population of around 1,000. Its residents fled during 1948, and Israel prevented the Palestinians from returning in violation of UN Resolution 194. In place of the original Palestinian inhabitants, the occupation settled some 130 Jewish families in the village immediately following 48, where they have lived ever since without proper infrastructure. In 2014 and today, Israeli police forcibly displaced 130 Mizrahi Jewish families in Givat Amal, a working-class neighborhood in Tel Aviv, to build luxury apartments. Givat Amal is a microcosm of the occupation at large. The founding displacement of Palestinian refugees, the racist use of Mizrahi Jews as disposable placeholders for them, and Ashkenazi elites' discrimination and neglect of Mizrahim, except when it's politically or economically expedient. After 65 years of residing in Givat Amal without the ownership opportunities or basic infrastructure created by, created by the early Ashkenazim, 80 Mizrahi families were displaced from the neighborhood in 2014. Evacuation orders for the remaining 40 went into effect recently. Families and activists barricaded themselves in their homes and lit fires to block police. Even after 200 police forcibly removed them from their home, Livna Ratsby, who lived in Givatamal since she was six years old, refused to leave, saying she would only go out on a stretcher. The experiences of Mizrahi Jewish residents of Givatamal are not directly comparable to those of the Palestinians who were ethnically cleansed in 1948, or even the ones that are being ethnically cleansed from Sheikh Jarrah right now. But the ongoing Nakba and the oppression of Mizrahim is connected. In 1948 to today, all forced displacement by the occupation is a result of Zionism, an Ashkenazi-led settler colonial movement that promotes ethnic hierarchy, not just Jews over Palestinians, but also European Jews over Jews from the Middle East and North Africa. So with that story as a backdrop, can you just talk about your feelings towards this particular situation and Ashkenazi structures using Mizrahi bodies in general? Yeah, I mean, I'm really... I told you we were going to be like keeping it light. Michael's going <laughs> into the deep end, so I'm sorry. No, it's good. No, it's good. It's like, it's, it's, uh, it's hard. Hey, how's the, how's the hummus over there? You know what I mean? What the <laughs> fuck am I supposed to say? It's Palestinian. Cool. It's, <laughs> the hummus is Palestinian, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a hummus. That's not even how you say it, you know? That that's the thing that always gets me is like, how are you gonna say it's Israeli when you're not pronouncing it? Right. And you know it's how a to whole pronounce new it. Word. And you know how it's to pronounce it because you speak Arabic. It's hummus. Yeah, that's just not the word though. You know, in the past, the Mizrahi struggle and the internal kind of hierarchies among Jews, it was not even a part of uh, the discussion uh, when we talked about, you know, Israel-Palestine and the larger political kind of geopolitical, you know, questions. And it's really a thing that we need to celebrate <laughs> in our community discussions, seriously, because growing up, in the heart of the, you know, between the Israeli narrative and the Palestinian narrative, the narrative was always the Ashkenazi narrative on the Israeli Jewish side, and on the Palestinian side, it's the Nakba. 
and where all the you know the 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 buffer zone in the middle to expose the kind of systematic oppression it, it you know it was it was not there the equivalence was like let's talk about the nakba let's talk about the holocaust but all of the things that enabled everything that is happening right now in the hierarchies and the dispossession and the oppression and everything are a result of everything also that happens in between and the mizrahi issue in the ethiopian community and the oppression of Jews of color and Jews who are non-Ashkenazi and systems within, you know, Jews who are doing this to Jews, this can be such uh, an incredible, you know, tool for us to, to, to understand basically everything that is happening. Because Givat Amal is such a tragic example of, 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 of you know, the injustice that the, the Israeli Black Panthers and the leaders of the Israeli Black Panthers since the 70s, they have been screaming this and saying, if you want to understand what uh, uh, Jews did to Palestinians, take a look at what Jews did to Jews. Because if Jews can uh, behave to Jews like this, then you can only imagine what they can do to Palestinians. And I'm saying this with grief, you know, a lot of people, when they hear me say these things, they're like, you know, you're a self-hating Jew, and why are you, uh, why are you saying these things? And there was no, there is no, uh, there is no way else to do it, and we don't have another place that is safe in the world. And this is, <laughs> I think, this is, you know, the most, uh, you know, some of the bullshit that we get. And I, and I'm and I'm thinking to myself that you know, Givat Amal, for example, these families that were, they were brought and they were put there as a buffer, as a as a buffer, right? in order to pre to prevent the Palestinians from, from coming back. And then it's just like, you know, the authorities at Ben-Gurion, and they told them, yeah, 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 you settle here, be here, make sure the Arabs, the Palestinians don't come back. And later on, I'll, uh, I'll make sure I'll take care of you that you get your houses and everything. The kibbutz and the Ashkenazi people who settled, you know, in Tel Aviv and in other areas, they had their shit sorted out. But it's people in the development towns in the south, next to Gaza, and on different buffer zones. They did not have. They do not to this day have the status that the right kind of residents that came and settled in other places received the privileges of the kibbutz of the of the of the other lands. You did propose to MBS. I'm just wondering if he ever got back to you. No, MBS never got back to me. Everyone else Shame. did, but him. Yeah, what a shame. Mur murderous dictator never called me back. We interviewed Masoud Hayoun. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He wrote yes. the book When We Were Arabs. And he describes how the erasure of culture and identity that the Mizrahi Jews experienced when they came to Palestine at the behest of the European settler colonial project is something that he mourns, right? And and this is something that Hadar also spoke about as well. I mean, you mentioned that you, you know, your family at some point didn't feel comfortable speaking Farsi, and then they started to lose the language. And Hadar had said something similar about, about Arabic even, because her family has been in Palestine, as I mentioned, for... 10 generations. So they were speaking Arabic. Arabic was their language. And after 1948, they got swept up in this new Israeli identity 
And that actually made her lose her Arabic language. So yeah. while her grandmother spoke Arabic, she doesn't really, and you know, she's working on it. Mas'ud also talked about how even just the notion of coming to settle in Palestine was something that he feels Israeli Jews were duped into by the Zionists. They were told, oh, come here, we're going to give you, you know, it's going to be great. You're going to be able to move here and we're going to give you houses and this and that and all these benefits. And then they get there and then they're treated, you know, very poorly. So yeah, it's, think, not, it's not just treated poor, poorly, like their kids were kidnapped. Yes, yes, their yes. Entire, their We've entire talked lives about were that. Yemen yeah. affair. Clearly there's structures in place that are trying to like replace older identities. And I was just wondering, like, you know, I think you we need that. to, I think we need to pass to, you know, I can, you know, I can tell you the same things that other interviewers were saying and tell you, but I want to kind of maybe bring you to, let's take it a step further, okay? Yeah. Mizrahi identity in Israel right now is being celebrated, mm. right? The establishment realizes all the mistakes that it has been doing, and now being Mizrahi is cool. Oh, this is interesting. Our, our food is better, our skin color is much more attractive, our language is legit because we have a peace accord with, you know, Arab countries, our music is, you know, you know how the black uh, uh, culture received validation from like the white industry because of its economic potential and suddenly you know, yeah. being, uh, so it's very similar to what Mizrahi music has been through here. It was robbed from the Mizrahi people and now it's being brought back to them because this is what we are celebrated for. We can be beautiful musicians, uh, have the best food entertainment, be the best actors, the sexiest figures. But as soon as we connect it to something that is political, or geopolitical, or has, or our bond with Palestinians, you're done. Yeah. The establishment is hugging the Mizrahi identity. It's not robbing it anymore. It's being hugged, and we, they're saying, we're sorry about what was done for you. You are a big part of the Zionist collective memory. And that is the biggest tragedy that I'm experiencing now with my Mizrahi story, because my grandfather would have never joined a militant Zionist uh, whatever to come kick out Palestinians from their homes. Yeah. They would have, he, he, he would have never been part of this. And so now the Zionist kind of, uh, let's say, mainstream kind of establishment is saying, no, 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 no. You, uh, Mizrahi people, you are a big Zionist story. Mm. We're, not side we're not sidelining you anymore. We are here because of you. Your story is this. We have this pioneer and they're going and digging up, you know, names of like rabbis and people to say, you know, rabbi, this did this and this did that. and But the big blood on the hands and the stains of these crimes that we did to Palestinians when we came here was not done by Mizrahi Jews <laughs> and yeah. at large, right? I'm not like dismissing and saying that we don't have a responsibility for what's going on. I'm not saying that like, you know, Mizrahi people are not part of the conversation that we're just victims. No, 
my cousins stand in checkpoints my 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 family like i have family members who who are who are who are like taking hand in part of this and it's really 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 bad and a lot of mizrahi people are really you know uh, hating their arabness and their mizrahiness and kind of um and expressing it out on the palestinians you know to, to, to say no we're not alike we're not alike our culture is not alike and then when it's convenient oh yeah we are alike oh we're arabs oh we are our food is, is similar and then when you try to kind of translate it into something political to say that palestinians and mizrahi people need to unite on the same mm-hmm. agendas because they're they're the ones who are being kicked out of their homes they're the ones who are not receiving funds like the settlers do and like the kibbutz ashkenazi people do mm-hmm. but there is no shared agenda because the the pioneers that tried to link those political agendas together like the black pan they were brought down yeah. they were brought down they were brought down and they will continue to break down and i really really believe and i really have to tell you that i'm scared for myself i'm speaking to you and i'm speaking up and i'll never shut up it's not even a choice like i'm i'll never shut up but to tell you that i'm not scared I, i i will be lying because the last thing that israel is going to watch from the side and see happens is a mizrahi palestinian solidarity historically 100%. present wise so it's very very scary the scary thing is that the mizrahi story is now being hugged by the establishment and it's being funded to be part of the israeli story and that's how it is being taken away from kind of like a radical political alternative identity that i was hoping we can take it to you know when when yeah. when kids when kids in schools now study a little bit about the black panthers they will study about it as a social movement no one will teach these kids that when the israeli black panthers wanted to go and meet plo activists their passports were taken away from them no one will say that to kids they will say yeah they fought for housing they yeah. fought for a, a welfare but will anyone say that those mizrahi black panthers were also there to talk about what is being done to palestinians never it's not part of the story yet and it it will never be yeah i mean this is this is wild but i mean obviously nothing really surprising right i think the zionist establishment has probably realized the power in the mizrahi community that's that's there that's latent there and has tried now to weaponize it to ensure that no sort of solidarity exists and that mizrahi people are not part of the liberation of palestine so that everyone can live there in a fully decolonized equal rights for all you know society i also wonder no, if part of, yeah. yeah did you want to add something no just to say that uh, sometimes it seems like mizrahi people need to prove that they're even more zionist than than everyone else because we were the mizrahi identity sort of comes with this baggage where this zionist system makes them show out right it reminds me of a, an nwa lyric where it's like black police showing out for the white cop right it's like the black policemen got themselves in close proximity to white supremacy and now they show that they're like worthy by exacting violence on their own communities 
Yeah. I also wonder if part of the reason why this new tactic has been used by Zionists is because they recognize that it will perhaps help confuse and maybe bolster a little bit their narrative because they realize that they are they are total outsiders and that at least Mizrahi people look like they fit in because they're kind of tan and at least Mizrahi people have similar music to Palestinians because you know it's a it's the same region right so you may have the same instruments or whatever it may be obviously there's differences when you compare that to European people coming and saying that they're indigenous to Palestine, it's, I mean, it's, it obviously falls apart. So, so maybe they've also realized the value in co-opting the Mizrahi identity to try to reinforce their very absurd claims of indigeneity to the land. And they're from Poland or wherever else. I want to turn a little bit to the documentary, Reckoning with Laughter. I pulled some great one-liners from the documentary that I'd love to just get your reaction to. At one point, you said that it was your responsibility to speak to your community because Palestinians already know what you are saying. And then you said that the oppressed does not come from an ignorant perspective ever. I started to think about how ignorance or the choice to be ignorant is really a luxury and in and of itself a reflection of supremacy. And so I wonder, I don't know, amongst your community, I I obviously know, you know, you told us about where you grew up, but maybe amongst your sort of extended friends, family, acquaintances, whatever it may be, how, how much awareness do you think there is about what has happened in Palestine for the last hundred years and how much just pure ignorance do you think there still is? I think the majority of people are not ignorant. It's just a matter of narratives and education and exposure. So you can know something and you can even know it up close and you can even be from a family where you know that the worker is coming every morning to work in construction next to your house, stood in checkpoints for five hours since 3 a.m. And you can know a lot of things. And you can know that the kids that soldiers told them to say cheese in the house in Hebron, you can sit and say, this is unfortunate, but those soldiers, they really need to find someone who threw stones, right? So I think that it's much deeper than lack of knowledge or it's much deeper than uh, not having awareness. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and much deeper than lack of awareness. And it's the training of your thought and of the narrative that this is the the situation and it has to be the situation because we are defending ourselves and we have the right to defend ourselves. And this is the security measurements. And this is the kind of life that needs to be lived in order for us to live in safety, right? So it's much deeper than that. Totally convinced that children in Hebron have to go through this kind of childhood and they have to live this kind of life so that we can live our, you know, free, comfortable life, right? There's no thinking there is no massaging of the brain in thinking that palestinians deserve the same things that we deserve there is no thinking that we we you know israeli jews we don't have to live such a life where we are occupiers 
you know, a lot of times we're talking about the yes. price that uh, that Palestinians pay for the occupation. And me as an Israeli Jew, again, while I am pro-Palestinian and I am fully, you know, here to live a just equal life on this land shared by all of us, I am really, really, really also worried for the people here who have p- severe PTSD, who have severe moral issues that we're not confronting because we're used to the situation of controlling millions of people. And so a very, very fundamental part of our lives here is just not happening. And it bursts out in day-to-day violence and it bursts out in day-to-day racism that we can't put a finger on it. And we don't understand that the source is all of the, to all of this is because we are convinced that we need to be in the army. We are convinced that we must oppress the Palestinians and that they have to be inferior for us in order for us to thrive. There is no thinking around how much we are not thriving because of what we are doing. We, you know, 12 years of Netanyahu and many, many, many more examples of many, many years of other prime ministers and other things that happened here. Political leaders are so dumb and not strategic and fail as human beings and as leaders that in order to justify their failures, they convince us that this is what must be done, right? This is what must be done. And this is how, this is the best life we can live. So we have to continue oppressing the Palestinians because this is it. This is our destiny. You know, since I started doing stand-up and, and I went into comedy and it's kind of I'm doing more creative stuff, I'm thinking a lot about Im- imagination. Mm-hmm. In my shows also, I do stand-up in Arabic and in Hebrew in front of mixed audiences and stuff. A, a, a big part of what I try to do is to be uh, a Jewish Mizrahi woman who is speaking Arabic, not for intelligence purposes, and kind of imagining how it is like to live here with my language, with my body, not as an occupier, right? As a stupid, funny neighbor who doesn't want to take your house anymore <laughs> and doesn't want to steal anything from you and just wants to share a life with you because no one is going anywhere. Jews are not going anywhere. Palestinians are not going anywhere. Palestinians deserve to come back. Palestinian, I, I will never give up my longing to see where my mom was born in Iran. And I do not expect any Palestinian to want to see where their grandparents were uh, uh, kicked out of. And I, and I know that you're thinking about Gaza, your, your origins are from, you will never stop dreaming and thinking and, 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 and living a life that is, Gaza is in your imagination. It's in my imagination, you know? We cannot uh, request Palestinians to do something that we didn't give up for 3,000 years. I, I, I totally understand that perspective. I mean, because <laughs> that we often say like, hey, if you're, coming, if you're coming here to claim land that you say you have a connection to from 3,000 years ago, I mean, we've, we've got, we've been, we were here three generations ago until we were expelled and we're still here, but we are being colonized and every day of our lives on that land resisting colonial violence in one form or another i and wonder if palestinians take a dna test 
most likely they will find out they're more Jewish than a lot of hundred percent. A hundred percent. We talk about this all the time because we are of the land. We, we, we are the people who were on the land during the Ottomans, you know, the Mamluks, the Byzantines, all the different empires that were in Palestine. Like we are the, the presence, the consistent presence. We are the, the descendants of all of those people. I bet. I, I, I remember I, I do have that plan for all Palestinians to convert to Judaism so they can go back to Palestine. <laughs> that's my that's my plan for getting us back there. Girl, Hiba Skandarani, she got a Portuguese passport, a Spanish or Portuguese passport. She has Sephardic Jewish blood and she went to research her, her uh, background and uh, she got a passport. Yeah. So I was saying we all like mass convert. I know it takes a really long time. It's like, it's a very exclusive club, you know? Yeah. It's, it's not like Islam. Like for us, you say one sentence you're in, but Judaism is a hard club to get into. Yeah. yeah. We're not missionaries. <laughs> no, at all. <laughs> uh, so let's, Oh, while you were talking about the PTSD, I remember now what I was going to say. This is something that Franz Fanon wrote about because he used to treat the French soldiers and officers who carried out torture to suppress the anti-colonial resistance in French-occupied Algeria. And him being obviously an activist and a leader of the anti-colonial movement, but also a psychiatrist, he noted that being an occupier creates this psychological distress and it is something that will have an impact on generations to come so i definitely um can understand you know your worry about the people there that are doing all the oppressing and what impact that's going to have on on their ability to see you know the world when you say that they for a lot of these people they just don't imagine any other way this is the way that life has to be. It's actually really quite sad because life doesn't have to be like that at all. In most places, life is not like that. And the reality is, is that oppression breeds resistance as it would in any situation. You know, Palestinians are not unique in, in wanting to resist power that is seeking to exterminate them. That is, that is not a unique reaction, right? You would um, think that Jews can understand this uh, rationale, right? Yeah. So, but in, instead, somehow they've managed to like project Nazism onto Palestinians. To be honest, I, I I can imagine that it's very psychologically draining to do what you do because you're you're stuck between all of these different narratives and you, like your everyday life. Like I don't even know. Like when you like go buy bread, are you like, oh my god, is this guy a Zionist? Like is this guy like, did he like, you know what I mean? Like I don't know. Are you you know? It's is it is it so is it. I can imagine it must be difficult to live in a place where your interactions in your daily life are with people that may completely, like you may completely disagree with their beliefs and what they've done. And then, you know, you have other people that you're sympathetic with and they're all in the same place and they're all on top of each other, you know? <laughs> I think the kind of dealing with all of this topics and subjects, like we're all playing different roles, right? Yeah. So the role that Michael has is an American Jew and the role that you have, you know, is a is a displaced, you know, Palestinian also yeah. and in the diaspora. The role that I have as an Israeli Jew like it's just very very different position positionings that we all have in terms of our responsibility and yeah. 
you know, you're saying like going to the supermarket and thinking everybody's is uh, you know everybody's Zionist here. It's it's not it's not. I I don't even view like what you call anti-Zionism. I mean, you know, I went to school in the U.S. and I'm totally into all the framing and everything. And of course, I understand what you're talking about, but the original framing of Zionism is not something that applies to me, you know, to me and my family to begin with. So what you consider as anti-Zionism, and I totally understand, you know, it's not, or even BDS or even the type of work that I need to do here from the inside, mm. the kind of fight and struggle that I have to fight with my people, with my family mm. against like the racism and the craziness, the brutality that we experience here is very, very, you know, different from, you know, what you're confronting with American Jews or what you're confronting in the diaspora. It's very, very different. And so I have to go on TV and say controversial things. And I have to work with, with people in order for my voice to get heard. And I have to, you know, digest a lot of hate and be very, very much exposed and also risk, like professionally, yeah. I, yeah. risking a lot because I'm just I'm not going to be this comedian who's just doing impressions of politicians and like you know doing uh, just uh, I, you know you're putting yourself already in a position where, where you're very critical about your own people and your own country but you're not doing it from abroad you're doing it from here and that just to begin with like you, you know I mean I work with Palestinians who work for the main broadcasting Israeli channel and we're trying to write political satire that criticizes the system from within the public channel like can you imagine the kind of censorship no i can't i mean i really can't because it's like i can imagine it being palestinian right but i can't imagine it when you're trying to undo and unwork and you know dismantle the system from from within because we're not in the system we're outsiders to that system you're totally leading a completely different fight and it's something that i can't I mean, I don't, uh, I don't even pretend to understand what it really is about, but I mean, I definitely have a lot of respect for the fact that you're doing it and it's not easy. Like it's not easy, but it's, I think when you get to a place like where you are, where you're like saying these things, doing these things, making this content, making this art in this way for these audiences, for you, it's like no longer a choice. It's like, you have to do this. You know, otherwise you wouldn't do it if it was a choice. But another thing you said was you said in a, in a decolonized Palestine where everybody is equal in the future and, and nobody is dismantling or, you know, bulldozing anybody's house that Jews won't leave. And I, and I wonder, I often think about that because I wonder how many of them that are there now are only there because of the fact that they live in this hierarchical society where apartheid is the status quo and where settler colonialism is, you know, the method for gaining more and more and more land. And, you know, I've read things, for example, where, you know, certain polls or whatever talking about, oh, if, you know, if Palestinians had rights, so and so many Jews would leave. Or, oh, so-and-so many Jews have double nationality, so, you know, they would they would immediately go back to their other, you know, country of nationality. And I wonder if you get a sense, being on the ground, that 
there are people that are really only there because of the fact that Israel is a racist state in its configuration today. I think it's going to depend on how the solutions and how the reconciliation and how this type of process will happen. Yeah. Because if, if it happens in a miserable, violent way, where the strong people who have you know, real estate here and land and all this like, economic power, they run out of power and they're just, you know, and they're just leaving. So I think what's going to happen is the lower kind of social economic status people from both sides, they're going to stay here because they have no other passports and they yeah. don't have anywhere else. Yes. And the strong, the strong economic uh, uh, power resources, people who it's their responsibility in the first place to provide and be part of the system that generates an equal agreement and you know rebuilds this place. If they take off, then it's then it's going to be a shit show <laughs> because also like we're going to be here just fighting over crumbs. You know, Israel has so much power, so much economic power in terms of our relationship also to Europe and to the United States. I really think that Jews need to understand ASAP that like we are the future. Like there's not going to be a future for Jews if there is no future for Palestinians. If Palestinians don't have a future, we cannot be here as well. In a close to utopian <laughs> equal future together, it's the responsibility, I think a huge responsibility of those that hold the power to be part of, 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 of what will look like, you know, a land for all its citizens and an equal land for all its in, in, in inhabitants. And I mean, I know it sounds like a stupid utopian kind of, you know, kumbaya piece. I mean, it of, really uh, doesn't. It really doesn't. It sounds like a place where I'd want to live. It sounds, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we, that's the thing. I, I don't know if, if, if Zionists know this or not or, if, or if whatever, but again, Palestinians have always welcomed people from all over the world. I mean, Palestine is a crossroads. You, you welcomed us too much. We just stayed. Yeah, but then, there you, you go. Need to re- <laughs> you need to reconsider. You need to reconsider your hospitality. Seriously. <laughs> And so there's nothing wrong with being an immigrant. Like, let's not get it twisted. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being an immigrant to another country, right? The question is, what do you do when you get there? You know, are you there to live side by side with the people who are already there and integrate into their society and then to work honestly and build, you know, the land and and and, and make it a better place for all of its citizens? Or are you there to commit a massive campaign of ethnic cleansing for now, you know, going on a hundred years and uh, participate in crimes against humanity and war crimes? You know, it's just like, there's two options and there's nothing wrong with the former. (laughs) Classic mix up. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with the former, you know? So I, for one, would love to see a Palestine that is, you know, multicultural and, and all of these things and and multi-religious and diverse and all of these things. But the premise is that there has to be justice and that there has to be equality. And once you get there, like anything is possible. We are just fighting for rights that you already have. And it doesn't mean that you are not going to have those rights. It just means that we'll also have them too. Yeah. 
the a lot of people you know move to berlin <laughs> and these are not the people who are the most hateful towards palestinians these are people who just can't stand the situation here yeah. like you know to uh, to to see it anymore so i think that it's really it's really something to worry about who are going to be the people who stay here and how this place is going to be shaped by the people who stay here and have nowhere else to go because yeah. it's a weaker position to not have a passport and somewhere to go to yes maybe we'll just end with one of the other quotes that i pulled from your documentary you said that there's nothing radical about demanding equality between jews and palestinians and i love this quote and i hope that you continue to remember it because anytime you think that you're doing something insane or that what you're doing is just so provocative and out there just realize that it's because the status quo is so insane and absurd and unjust and in fact your reality is not the radical one you know you, you there's nothing radical about demanding equality between people and so i hope you will remember that as you continue in your work but you know you have to i think i think that's why the work that you're doing has to be really 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 tough and technical because you have to expose people to truth but then you also have to make them comfortable enough to laugh with what you're saying and I, it's, it's, about, it's a delicate balance. I'm not a comedian, but I, I, I do work with words every day as a lawyer. <laughs> so I can imagine that it's a very, very delicate balance between, you know, having people throw shit at you, like having Zionists be like, get her out of here. Someone, you know, arrest this girl and uh, choosing to actually be confronted with some uncomfortable truths and maybe have to challenge that as well. That's so funny. Yeah. You said I'm not a comedian, but I work with words. That would be like, <laughs> I'm not a lawyer, but I do work with briefs, uh, yeah. boxer briefs. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> They're comfortable. I thought of a quote, in an empire of lies, the truth is treason. And I just want to say I have an immense amount of respect for what you do, the position you hold, and the viewpoints that you espouse. You know, I'm a American Jew, I'm a white man. So it's like, I know I'm in a very privileged position relative to you and uh, just wanna shout out your bravery and thank you so much for coming on the pod. Thank you guys for having me. And yeah, I'm just, I, I'm trying to soak in like positive energies to keep, uh, <laughs> to keep, keep uh, going. Yeah, to keep going. No, but there is no other, no other choice. To our listeners, you can follow Noam at Noam underscore June. That's the Farsi. That's a little Farsi connection for you there. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, you can check out the documentary Reckoning with Laughter. It's available in full on YouTube. Folks, that's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you so much to our guests and all of our listeners. Please go ahead and check out our sources, www.palestinepod.com. Dot com. Follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and check us out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day. And uh, we're well, I actually to- had a pretty funny joke. Uh, when you first hit us up the first time, <laughs> yeah, you were like, uh, you were like, oh, I'm stuck in traffic, and Lara was like, they got traffic on those Jewish roads.
<laughs> I was like, you well, know, she's on an Israeli road, so like, what's holding you know her the, up? You know, the traffic is like the number one issue here right now. I mean, for people who don't know about well, the I don't know about that. You know what I mean? I feel like there's probably, the traffic <laughs> no. is probably not the number one. There's probably for, like two or three. People. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like maybe it does. I don't even feel like it makes the top five. You know what I mean? For people who, who don't give a fuck about, you know, whoever is not Jewish and for people who uh, don't care about settler violence and stuff, they're like, oh, yeah, that traffic is horrible. So. Yeah, well, I've always said too many people there, you know? Yes, too many. 